Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Yes, we are still taping from afar, but you will be listening to it on any podcast site, actually, and or on the radio, SCIUT 89.5 FM. And by the way, thank you for all of those who contributed to the station. Please keep those donations coming. And uh, of course, we'd love to hear from you about any of our panels. Uh, now, today, we have our political panel. We haven't had them for a while. Uh, we've got both uh, Emma Wakelin and Alex Grant on. And Emma, of course, liberal strategist, has a new role. You might want to tell us a little bit about that, Emma. And, uh, and Alex uh, is one of the editors at Fight Back, Marxist. And of course, yours truly, Sherry DeNovo, the Radical Reverend, your host. Uh, we've got a lot of topics to cover. But first, Emma, let's go to you. You've got a new job. What are you doing? Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, joined the Ontario Liberal Party as manager of uh, mentorship and training. So um, I'm looking very much forward to uh, helping develop a training curriculum for our volunteers and uh, try to get um, more uh, people of uh, color, more LGBTQ plus people uh, running as candidates um, and as campaign organizers. So it's an exciting role. And you've made membership free now. Yeah, as of uh, July 1st, membership is now free. Yeah. So so you'd be right picking for NDP or conservative who was looking for the inside scoop on the enemy, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a big tent. Everyone's welcome. <laughs> uh, and Alex, how's life with you? How's the, how's, the, how's the magazine now online, of course? And how are, how are things in your organizing world? Uh, things are going uh, well in society. Uh, everything's burning down, uh, but uh, people are looking for radical change. So there's been a huge influx of people who are interested in uh, socialism and Marxism, the ideas of revolution. Cool. Well, let's start right in. Let's talk about um, a revolution that seems to be ongoing, uh, certainly an uprising, let's call it that. And that's the movement that's taken hold of the world since the death of George Floyd. Well, actually before that, um, and has been around for 50 years. Somebody was quoting Huey Newton on a newscast I, I listened to a little earlier. Uh, but this we have seen uh, in kind of unprecedented numbers around the world in terms of reaction, specifically to police violence, but also, of course, with a lot broader demands than that. So, Alex, um, what does this mean? Is this the revolution? What is it? It may be the beginning. Well, th there's this idea in uh, Marxist philosophy of quantity into quality, that the straw that breaks the camel's back. And the fact is that people take injustice this injustice, that injustice, that attack, this attack, and, and you think that they'll take it forever. And then one final thing, yes, the straw that breaks the camel's back typifies all of those years, decades, centuries of racism, of injustice, and people say, no more, no more. And then you've seen this uprising, this incredible uprising, this uh, total shift in public opinion. And in a few weeks of mass demonstration, mass struggle, more has been achieved 
then decades and decades and decades of lobbying of uh, the Democratic Party and, and any sort of uh, institutional change that it just shows the power of working class people of racialized people to change society and 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 that and that gives me incredible hope for the future of humanity emma what do you think's going on what is this all going to end up meaning i i don't know um i i'm not as optimistic as alex that this is going to be a long-term shift um I think the reality is with modern life, uh, we are a very distracted people. And um, I, you already see the attention, uh, I think, of a lot of people shifting already it, far too quickly. Um, it, in 2015, we thought um, uh, with, with the events in Ferguson uh, that that was going to be the spark of a, of a change in culture with police. Um, brutality uh, against people of color and, and people of LGBTQ um, communities. And it wasn't because, uh, again, we, we got distracted with our daily life uh, already with the shift of the pandemic uh, in the south, uh, south of the border, uh, CNN, MSNBC, and all the, the media. I mean, the attention now is completely shifted back onto uh, the, the numbers in the pandemic. I, uh, we saw in the, in the vote on Monday, um, uh, how that failed uh, pretty spectacularly, I, I would say. Um, I think it was eight to sixteen or, or something like that. Um, with the the vote on the defunding of uh, or the motion on defunding the Toronto Police. I, I, I don't know. I, I I think every this should have ended when Eric Gard, uh, Garner was said he couldn't breathe uh, eight years ago or seven years ago. Um, it seems that this is a, a uh, a cycle that just never ends, and uh, I think the the true or one of not one of the big enemies is just distraction and how bored we get of a current subject before we move on. Uh, let's talk about that vote, and I'm I'm going to stick with you um, because it very much was along party lines, even though partisan politics is not supposed to play a role in Toronto politics. This is the Toronto Council vote, just for listeners out there. Uh, who don't know what we're talking about. So it failed, as Emma said, um, and it failed along party lines. Liberals, uh, other than Josh Matlow, kind of voted against it. Um, NDPers or those associated with the NDP voted for defunding the police. And remember, we're talking about 10%, not 50%, 10%. And in fact, went on to vote for more money for the police, for body cameras. So they actually went the distance in the other direction. Um, uh, why? So am I just going to come back to you? Like, why, um, why did they take that position? What, what's the rationale? What's the strategy behind that? Well, I, 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 there's two, um, arguments being used by those who voted against it. Um, one is that the, the motion was symbolic in nature. Um, the police board, the, the, the reality actually, and this is the truth, the, the reality in Ontario is city councils have no jurisdiction over police uh, budgets. Um, There is no local oversight. And I would argue that there's actually no um, uh, elected official oversight of of police activities in Ontario. It all goes uh, either to the SIU and budgets are are determined by the police boards, which are largely appointed by the province. Um, 
so some were arguing that this would have tied uh, a vote uh, for the, the police board would have either have just been um, rejected out of hand or would have gone to the independent um, agency that oversees uh, disputes between police boards and, and police agencies and tied that up in litigation. So that's one argument. I don't necessarily buy into that, although I do uh, buy in that we need more local oversight. Um, and then the other one is just pure ideological um, um, opposition to defunding police. And I think the the lack of courage for a lot of the councillors, we're looking at public numbers and we can say that there is a groundswell of support to defund police, but the reality is that that's still under 40%, um, depending on what polls you believe. So um, a city councillor is probably not likely to put their, their career on the line for, for, um, for a, um, a vote that probably only has about 33 to 37% support, given how powerful and militant, um, no pun intended, obviously, uh, that police unions are and how effective they are at um, scaring um, politicians. Uh, Alex, what do you think happened at City Council and why? I mean, it, I, I, I would also add it's, it's shocking in, in relation to some of the changes, quite dramatic changes that have happened in American cities as a direct result of Black Lives Matter. But here, no sale. Why? Well, I, I think... This, uh, the discussion we're having right now typifies the difference between liberalism and socialism on whether you've actually have confidence in working class people to make change or whether you look at the existing structures. And the reality is that there's been a, a huge uh, change in public opinion. Like in the United States, uh, the figures they had in 2017, uh, 5% disapproved or uh, net disapproval of Black Lives Matter. 2019, it was 5% approval rating. And then in the last month, it's gone up by 30%. So an incredible shift in public opinion. And the reality is that you can't have a reformist approach to this. That a 10% reduction, well, that's just taking the Toronto police budget, which is the largest part of the Toronto budget, so 25%, like $1.3 billion, uh, that you reduce it by 10%, you're just going back a few years, and it's a racist institution. It's a racist institution, and capitalism needs the police, and capitalism needs racism. And then you've got capitalist uh, politicians like John Tory. Of course, they're going to back that up. Of course, they're going to back that up. But what we need is fundamental change. It can't be just playing around with uh, taking away 10% here and there. We need to abolish the police. That's, I think, what we should be asking for, is, is abolish the police and change society. And, and more and more people are coming around to that point of view. And this is, of course, revolutionary. This is revolutionary. Uh, you can't uh, achieve that by tinkering at the edges. But more and more people are open to a revolutionary uh, idea in a revolutionary appeal. You may be right, but I, I've always thought um, that there's no contradiction between reform and revolution. In other words, it's, it's the pressure, let's put it this way, from the left that has resulted in phenomenal gains. I mean, if you, even if you look at the Communist Manifesto and Marxist calls back then, where basically a lot of them were welfare state calls that we have actually achieved um, 
through, yes, push from the left, but reforms that have happened. So reforms actually help people save people's lives in the interim period, let's put it that way, perhaps until revolutionary change becomes possible. So I would make that argument. Um, uh, and in this case, I, I think what's shocking is that even though we've had tens of thousands in the streets uh, everywhere, um, we couldn't get 10%. And Emma, you're right, of course, ultimately the buck stops with the provincial government, but that's even makes it even more egregious in, in my estimation that it was just you know a sign and we couldn't even accomplish that i and, and people are camped out in nathan phillips square and people have been camped out there for, for a long time now so these same counselors have to walk through a crowd in and out or virtually they walk through that crowd in and out to make to cast their votes i mean it, it strikes me it's depressing and i have to say um you know, I, I'm a hopeful person by nature. Um, but I, I, so I'm going to throw out another question. It's on this topic and it's about um, identity politics, period. So I wanted to talk about that because um, obviously Emma and I and others have, have fought on the identity pol political front for LGBTQ rights, among others. Um, but I mean, is I mean to really have a revolutionary movement, to really have significant change. Do we not have to universalize the identity politics? And to use your language, um, Alex, um, if you're talking about the working class, it, does this not does Black Lives Matter not have to get together with queer activists, get together, you know, uh, with those who are in the disability sector, um, and of course, just union rank and file members to make change before change is possible. Is there a limit to identity politics and to the accomplishments of identity politics? Um, Emma, I'm gonna go to you first. Well, I, I think any, um, I would argue any uh, revolution that does not rely on intersectionality um, is bound to fail. The, the, you know, Alex, you speak uh, about working class people, but I would argue that the majority of people do not describe themselves as being working class it, it's such um it, it's it's a description I, that it, i think no longer really applies in in today's society what is a working class person well, who is a worker i mean are there factories even anymore in, in canada so i think we look at the the uprisings in the last couple of weeks or last couple of months and and who have they been they've been people of color they've been um lgbtq people who have who have also been uh, under the, the 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 knee of the police, if you will. Um, so I, I think if we're truly um, talking about a revolution to change society, um, we we can't uh, we can't just rely on uh, on the old battlefronts of either class classism or 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 racism or or, or it, it has to be. A, a, an umbrella otherwise it's doomed to fail we're just too um we're too uh separated uh, we're, we're too divided right now into, into different quote-unquote niche um beliefs it, it's I, I don't think we've ever been as divided as we are today as a society uh alex before i go just um i mean i i i, I might problematize that by saying that yes there's not as many people workers in factories of the union movement as such is diminishing year by year. They're not organizing, but there's sure a lot of people that they're on CERB that aren't going to get their jobs back that are mm -hmm. working in, you know, the hospitality industry, their workers, um, or who are working behind a computer 
right now, um, thousands and thousands of IT jobs where they're pretty soul destroying in their own strange yeah. ways. Um, and those people are workers too. But I'm gonna throw it to you, Alex. Uh, is there a limit to identity politics uh, in terms of making revolutionary or even dramatic strategic change? Well, the left would be complete idiots to abandon the notion of the working class. In fact, uh, the, the US Democrats abandoning the working class was one way of handing a victory to Donald Trump. And actually, even Canadian politics and statistics that show the majority of the Canadian public either consider themselves working class or poor. Uh, very hard statistics on that. But you cannot separate uh, class and race. There is a multiracial working class, and there always has been. And you've, if you've seen it, statistics today show that where is the worst COVID incidence in Toronto? It is in the northwest corner, the Jane and Finch area, where it is the poorest class and the most racialized race. That's, and those are all the people who are being forced to do service sector jobs, manufacturing jobs, which put them most uh, at risk of the virus. And then also uh, they live, uh, they're poor, they're in poor housing, cramped conditions. So they have the worst spread and then the most, the highest rate of hospitalization. Race and class are entirely intertwined and, and, and are entirely part of capitalism. Racism exists because it's incredibly profitable. So Malcolm X said that you can't get rid of racism without getting rid of capitalism. It is right in the DNA. Back in its founding fathers, you know, in terms of slavery or British imperialism, racism was part of the DNA of capitalism. But even today, even today, uh, whether it's police violence or it is poor housing, or poor education, all of these things, uh, we need to fight in a united way. And, and, that, and in terms of identity politics, I don't believe that having more women or blacks uh, you know, as president of the United States of America, I don't believe that actually fundamentally makes change for working class racialized people at the bottom. We need massive change from the bottom up and not just shuffling the deck chairs at the top. But we don't know that because we've never had a woman president and we've only had one black president who has who faced intense racism. And I would argue that um, the racism shown to Obama was, was largely uh, the reason uh, Trump was elected. If you look at Bernie, the reason Bernie lost both elections uh, for primary was not because of some DNC plot. He lost because uh, Hillary had about seven out of 10 black voters and Biden had more than eight out of 10. That's the reason Bernie lost is because the, the, the progress, the far left, the face of that has been overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. But Obama is opposing this Black Lives Matter movement. He's actually opposing the movement, telling people to go home and just wait till the vote in November and get off the streets. When in fact, it's people on the streets led by black people correctly, but uh, it's not just black people. It's a multiracial mass movement. Uh, and Obama and the, uh, the democratic apparatchiks 
Uh, they've been telling people to stay home and I'm falling for this uh, sort of mantra of Antifa and anything like that uh, is any way of demonizing the mass movement. When the mass movement is what makes change. Just just want to uh, start in here for, for just a moment, but in terms of, of, of who is and who isn't working class, would not army rank and file and police rank and file count as workers in the classic Marxist sense. I mean, they're working for a salary. Um, and in fact, when we look at the Russian Revolution, or you know, certainly, you know, the troops, you know, some of the soldiers um, were part of that. Um, and even Venezuela. So, I mean, are they not, even though military workers? Just asking. There's a worker in terms of your relationship to the means of production, wage labor, etc. But there's also being working class in terms of consciousness that matters. Uh, you've seen police unions. The existing police unions have played a terrible reactionary role. They're, they're supporting Trump. They're opposing any accountability. They need to. The, the existing police unions need to be kicked out uh, of the AFL-CIO. I don't think any of them are affiliated in, in Canada. Uh, in history, yes. Some parts of the police and some parts of the military have come up forward, come over to revolutionary movements. So it's not impossible for that to happen, for them to have class consciousness. But at the moment, the, the American police unions are, and, and the Toronto police union have been totally abysmal. So just Alex, on this for a minute, because we were speaking before the program started, but, um, and by the way, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show here on podcast on CIUT. And this is our political panel with Alex Grant and Emma Wakelin. Emma, liberal strategist, Alex, Marxist, uh, editor at Fight Back, and uh, yours truly, Sherry DeNovo, the Radical Reverend. Um, we were talking about the heads of the union in terms of the defund the police movement. And uh, you said something that shocked me that, uh, it, I, you know, the ONDP is not called for defunding the, the police that I find shocking. But the other piece I found shocking was that the heads of the unions are not calling for that in any way, shape or form, which is the core key demand of Black Lives Matter. At the very least, that's the core key demand. So how can they say they support Black Lives Matter if they don't support that? What, what's your takeaway from the fact that the heads of unions are not supporting this call? Yeah, well, I think some of them are. And I, and you saw a fantastic movement in um, uh, on the west coast uh, longshore uh, workers uh, that they they went out on strike on Juneteenth, and there was uh, bus drivers who refused to uh, take prisoners. So there has been definite working class solidarity, but in terms of the tops of the labour movement, it's actually identity politics. It's identity politics of how can we. Uh, change the colour of people at the top rather than defund the police or abolish the police, which are the main two slogans coming out of the movement that are real mass struggles and involve mass action. So uh, to be honest, the labour movement is bureaucratised and it's full of careerists. It's full of careers. Is it, uh, and uh, th that's all, all they seem to understand. And they're afraid of mass movement. It's like participate in the mass movement, mobilize thousands and thousands of people. That's what the labor movement should be doing. And it's not. It's not. And it's, it's scandalous. And the careerists need to be kicked out and genuine militants need to be put in their place. Let's let's move on to uh, talking about uh, that topic that Emma said is now back on the front pages of uh, CNBC and MSNBC, et cetera, uh, CBC, and that's COVID. We're still in COVID. Uh, we're reopening 
Um, and some say too quickly, some say not quickly enough, uh, but the reality is we are. Uh, what, like, how is this fundamentally going to shift us? I know we've talked about this before, but we're a little down the pike now on it. So I'm interested in what you think now from this vantage point. So Emma, how will COVID shift our political uh, spaces and our government's reactions? I mean, for one thing, I'll throw out this. I mean, CERB, People are on serve. It's saving lives right now, quite frankly. Yeah. But it's going to come to an end. It's going to be catastrophic. Well, and, and yeah, and that that's exactly right. And and, and that's the big danger for uh, Trudeau right now. And for him, I mean, one of the the saving graces for him is that the Conservative Party is imploding, uh, and the other parties uh, seem be doing the same. Uh, but CERB has been extremely popular. And it's the reason that Trudeau's numbers have risen. Uh, and quite frankly, I would say it's the reason Doug Ford's numbers have risen because no one, uh, I shouldn't say no one, um, those who want, who who benefit from CERB, and far too many people don't, but those who have um, benefited from CERB have been able to keep the light, literally keep the lights on in their home and, and food on the table for the last four months. Um, but that is going to end, whether it ends next month or two months or whatever, um, it's going to end. And whether it ends politically or ends because the, the federal government is just going to run out of money, um, uh, there's going to be a reckoning. Uh, and if if the economy is not ready and if, if COVID, if the numbers of COVID is not ready for us to support people going back to work, we're going to end up in a catastrophe in, in the fall. And we'll see politically um, that uh, I think that'll be a seismic shift for both the federal and provincial governments. Um, so to be honest, I don't know, no one knows politically what's going to happen in the next uh, uh, six months. But if uh, we don't get the numbers under control and um, if we're not able to reopen the economy, we're going to have millions of people uh, suddenly without any means of um, supporting themselves. What about um, universal, universal guarantee? income, which has been floating around. Um, is there any any political will at all to just move from CERB into that as a way of, you know, softening the blow? I mean, there's it's contentious, I know, on the, the left for certain reasons, but it certainly seems to make a whole lot of sense in some ways, uh, federally. What do you think, Emma? Yeah, if it's going to be uh, implemented uh, anytime soon, it's going to have to be federal, uh, fed, done federally. Uh, provincially, we, we know what Ford... Um, his opposition to universal basic income is, is pretty uh, evident. Uh, and despite promise that he wouldn't, he killed the, uh, the, the pilot program that we had uh, going in Ontario when, when he got elected. Um, so um, uh, I think, I, I don't know what the appetite is federally. I, I think if I'm Trudeau and I see the oncoming disaster, if, uh, if CERB ends, I would be, uh, selfishly, politically, I would want to, to do something, but um, whether they, they see that coming, I don't know. Um, but I do know that pub, uh, out in the public, um, the, the opposition for uh, universal basic income is is considerably less than it used to be uh, now that they see what uh, the benefits of um, uh, our social safety nets are. And, and um, you know, the the art, the the automation of our, our of our workforce is not slowing down by any means. If anything, COVID's probably um, 
given CEOs more of a reason to try to do away with some of their workforce. So at some, I think the reality is we're going to have to look at a universal basic income, and I'm heartened that uh, the public, the opposition to that in the public is, is dwindling. Alex, um, uh, radical changes, what happens when CERB ends and universal basic income future? The expiry of CERB is really a ticking time bomb. That And, and that's why... Trudeau was forced to extend it for an extra two months that it was it was set to expire at the end of this month. And clearly, we're, well, we, we're still in various stages of lockdown and there's no jobs out there. So to dump what would have been, what, five, six, seven million people on the job market at the same time when also it's not safe out there for large sectors that would create a political explosion. So we punted it an extra couple of months down the road. But, well, let's hope that COVID is uh, more manageable then. I hope so. But we can't be guaranteed. You might be in the middle of a second wave. And the United States is a dumpster fire right now. So Canada might be reinfected from the United States. So it's uh, uh, preparing big explosions. And, and and really, it's actually the motor force of the majority of revolutions in history, the question, who pays? Right? They're, they're, you've got the right wing screaming about how expensive CERB is, but then there's been even more handouts to big business and they're silent about them. And the question really resolves around who pays and who lives and who dies? Who gets infected and who gets to stay in their mansion perfectly safe? So this is and is really is an insolvable contradiction for a society based upon profit. Profit motive means producing all of these goods and services, many of which that aren't essential, but capitalism relies upon it. And a society that produces for need wouldn't face the same contradiction of a crisis in the economy. Emma, I'm just going to go back to you because I, I thought of something else that's really in your forte um, uh, politically in, in terms of how COVID's changing the landscape. Uh, I, I mean, I put this down as a, as a possible topic, but, you know, 71% some people had Ford's approval rating at 71%, something horrendous. But I mean, we see federally the implosion, as you said, of the, of the Conservative Party. Um, and they seem to be you know, tacking right at a time which seems bizarre um, and, and out of step with where most Canadians are in their leadership race. I, I like it, it, it seems it, it really is a house on fire. Any insight into that from where you sit in the political world? Like what's happening with the Tories? So, yeah, I, I, politically, it just doesn't make sense. So you I've been thinking about that a lot. And, and the only thing that comes to mind to me is that uh, they, and the reality is the Conservative Party has a, a floor that they never go under. And it's about 38, 36 or 38%. I forget which one it is. Um, so they might just be uh, at this point uh, figuring out what provinces can we form governments and keep governments there. And uh, federally, can we make money being the leader of a party? Uh, you know, having can my friends make money um, being consultants for the party, making two hundred thousand dollars a year or plus, um, and then go work for lobbyists? Uh, so, I 
I, if I just looked at straight demographics in the last election, and if I was a Conservative Party um, um, operative, I would say, Lord Almighty, we would have to make some large changes pretty quickly. Um, but they they refuse to. And, and the GOP is the same down in the South. So clearly they must have some stra grand strategy in mind, either um, creating their own form of civil war, uh, which I think that the U.S. is going to break out in the next uh couple of years uh or they they have decided to this is where we can have governments in alberta we can have governments in saskatchewan forever we can make a lot of money off of those and uh maybe once in a while we'll win in ontario but we need to satisfy that base in certain provinces alex again it's here to you uh, uh our militias um i'm glad that emma mentioned that uh i mean i it, you kind of shake your head and think this can't be but then you look and you see that they're in fact a thing. Um, and not just south of the border, I've become increasingly aware of sort of friends of my kids' friends kind of who are into outrageous conspiracy theories, who are clearly getting their quotes unquote facts from ultra-right sources. Um, as, especially in the relig religious spectrum, I'm seeing a, a real move to crazy kinds of theologies um, and uh, by norm, so-called normal people. Uh, I mean, is are we really teetering, especially south of the border, on totalitarianism? Is that what's actually happening, or is this is this completely blown up of scale? What do you think? Well, society is definitely much more polarized, and but but you, there is a balance that there are people going to the far right, and there's been people who are fascists who have fired upon the Black Lives Matter protesters. But it is normally one lone government versus thousands and thousands of protesters, right? So there is a very, the, the balance of forces on the streets are overwhelmingly towards the left. Actually, often then you've got the police defending and supporting the small, the small number of uh, right-wing uh, militants. Uh, I'm trying to right now. Uh, I hope you appreciate that. Um, and I, but the the movement is developing. Yeah, and uh, I, if there aren't more peaceful ways of making change, if the Toronto City Council and other city councils keep on voting down perfectly reasonable uh, reforms to improve situation, then people will take things into their own hands that's the case so you either get yes peaceful revolution and if you make peaceful revolution impossible you make violent revolution inevitable uh, though I, I wouldn't say that this is going to you know we shouldn't overblow this and say uh, it's automatically going to be civil war or anything like that uh, I actually precisely because the balance of forces aren't so equal that in terms of people out on the streets it's overwhelmingly towards the left then I think it's much less likely that there will be a hot civil war. But there will, there is definitely these fascist gangs. Flipping back to Canadian politics, because uh, I want to, we'll talk a little later in the show about American politics um, more extensively, because of course it's an election coming up down there. Um, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show here on podcast or on CIUT 89.5 FM. Um, thank you for listening in. Love to hear from you. Uh, so do call me, do tweet at me. I always respond. 
And uh, we've got our political panel today, Alex Grant, Marxist editor at Fight Back, and Emma Wakelin, liberal strategist, our panelists. Uh, Jagmeet Singh um, stood up and, demand, and uh, called uh, a Bloc Quebecois member a racist. And just to set the stage for this, uh, for those who maybe, you know, it's last week's news, um, he, uh, the Bloc vote was the only no vote on an almost unanimous uh, motion. Now, for the people that were in the House, but a unanimous motion to look into racism in the RCMP. So Jagmeet called him a racist and was asked by the speaker to apologize. He did not. Um, should he, Emma? What's going on there? And uh, it was this, I, I don't think it was strategic. I kind of saw, we all saw the clips. I don't, I, I think it was kind of spur of the moment but um, because I'm always cynical about any politician who does things like this, as we all know, um, uh, they're often thought out in advance. But I don't think this one was. This seemed very off the cuff. Uh, what should he do, Emma? Well, he should not apologize. Listen, I'm not a Jagmeet fan, and um, I'm the first one to, to defend that there are rules, parliamentary rules that need to be defended, and they are often the bedrock of our of our democracy but there's also a point where rules are an ass and i think that's part of it um this block member was being racist and he has a history of very problematic speech uh and um uh, i think it's ridiculous um for the speaker or for anyone who's defending um kicking jagmeet out of the uh the chamber to especially given what's going on right now, but just any time to tell a person of color that, no, you sit down and be quiet, uh, even though you're, you're uh, seeing racism or you're calling out racism, sit down and be quiet and, and be um, well-behaved. I think that's, uh, uh, I think it's frankly absurd and offensive. So no, uh, I, I support, I 100% support Jagmeet on this. Uh, he was right calling the, the block member a racist and he was right not to apologize. And, uh, um, I don't think he has anything to apologize for. Uh, Jagmeet, that is not. Yeah. Um, so what's the scoop there? And I and, and I honestly haven't been paying attention since the, this news broke dramatically, uh, just in terms of parliamentary procedure. Is he allowed back in the House? Or does he have to apologize to be allowed back in the House? I'm sure there's a lot of negotiation going on behind the scenes, but um, do you know if there's any hard and fast rules? I, I mean, I, I don't, think he would be allowed back in until he apologizes if uh if memory serves me correctly i mean and i'll defer to you as a somebody who served as a deputy speaker i think if if you're kicked out of the house for a reason you have to apologize before you're allowed back in um so but i cannot imagine this is a hill the speaker is willing to to die on uh and i don't even believe it was the speaker who kicked jagmeet out i think it was a deputy speaker it was a deputy speaker yeah yeah, yeah. so um and uh, you'll forgive me, I don't know if the speaker has made um, more comments on this or rulings on this, um, but uh, just my rudimentary knowledge of uh, parliamentary procedure, I don't think he'd be allowed back in until he apologized. But if I were him, I, I, would, I would not apologize. I, I stand outside the parliament and scream to, to the, the skies that they won't let me back in. Uh, I suspect it will be negotiated because I know yeah. even on the government side, they supported him. And I, and I absolutely think he did the right thing too. I mean, there's no question. Um, Alex, what do you think? Well, the ironies are just piling upon each other. 
You don't need a better lesson in uh, bourgeois parliamentarism than you get punished for calling out racism and instead of being racist. That, you know, that, that's totally unacceptable. And for the first racialized leader of a major political party to uh, be kicked out for calling out racism, uh, it's utterly scandalous. The, the other irony is, so Jagmi was uh, yeah, moving a motion about systemic racism in the RCMP, a federal institution. Here you've got the Bloc Québécois defending a fed, an institution of the federal state. Uh, just ridiculous ironies there. And, and people in Quebec, I, I'm in touch with people in Quebec, are very angry over this. That uh, and, and they're trying to sort of spin this as they say, oh, they're saying that everybody in Quebec is racist. That's not what Jagmeet was doing at all. Actually, Jagmeet made quite a good statement saying in terms of institutional racism, that, well, who, who led the institutions? Well, it was the federal conservatives and the federal liberals are the only people in power. So they're really responsible for institutional racism. And, uh, and in fact, you know, to talk about systemic racism, in the 1960s, Francophones had 50% of the wages of Anglophones. That is systemic racism. Today, in Montreal, the black population has 30% lower wages than the rest of the population. That is systemic racism. So we, we need to call it out and we need to fight against it. One of the uh, realities, of course, of the RCMP, when you look at talk about history, you look at their history, I mean, they really were a colonizing force. They were the ones that uh, were forcing, you know, indigenous off lands that were owned by them. It, I mean, their, their history is undoubtedly racist. Um, uh, so clearly that needs to be looked at. Uh, so so here's the conundrum. So we all agree, Jagmeet did the right thing, called out a racist. Uh, it gave him quite a lot of exposure. I mean, it was um, major on all social media and um, all the news channels. Uh, but, you know, to get back to that point of 71%, you know, approval rate for Ford, but the NDP is in the doldrums in terms of the polling. They're like around 15% federally, and they haven't really budged from that. Uh, and even provincially, they're, you know, running third to the Liberal Party now and have been pretty consistently. What's going on, Alex? I'm going to start with you on this first. What's what's happening there? Well, I guess there's two parts of this equation. There's the, the boost in support for sitting governments, and then there's the situation with the NDP. And in terms of sitting governments, well, yeah, this is a generalized phenomenon that all, almost all sitting governments have seen a 20, 30% boost in their popularity. Except actually what's interesting, there's two provincial governments that have not seen a support, boost in support, and that is Jason Kenney in Alberta and, and Brian Pallister in um, uh, Manitoba. And they've been instituting austerity. They've been very specifically instituting austerity and they haven't got the boost. Whereas the other gov governments have been a lot more cautious, including Doug Ford, uh, that yes, Serb, things like that, uh, they've kept the situation on ice and the infection rates have gone down, except if you're in long-term care or if you're a temporary foreign worker. Uh, but for the general population, it's gone down. And so they've got a popularity boost and that'll exist until they're forced to a situation of instilling austerity. 
with respect to why the NDP hasn't broken through, it's really got to get out of the parliamentary bubble and out to the streets. It really has to, otherwise it just doesn't break through. It doesn't break through, even when, even when they do good stuff, it's half measures, it's parliamentary, it's bureaucratic, it's not noticed, it's got to be out on the streets uh, in terms of promoting a mass movement. Emma? Well, uh, in terms of the NDP, I, th I think the, 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 the problem is uh, with the, um, the right turn of uh, the Conservative Party uh, federally uh, and just the disaster that is south of the border. Uh, Canadians are afraid of uh, and shown themselves to be afraid of electing a Conservative government. And I think the NDP just got into a terrible squeeze play. Um, and they, most Canadians viewed that the only way to stop Andrew Scheer from being prime minister, and I'm going to say if it's Aaron O'Toole, it would be even worse, uh, was to elect um, a Liberal government. Uh, and I think the NDP, uh, and we saw that Jake Mead uh, performed very well in the, uh, the debates and got a quote-unquote bubble that everyone thought that he had uh, was increasing his numbers and it ended up being the exact opposite of that. So I think there's a squeeze play going on in federal politics right now. In terms of Doug Ford, um, uh, the, the bar was very, very low for Doug Ford. Um, and <laughs> I think Alex is right on that. I mean, the, the fact that he didn't trip on the carpet doesn't make him uh, Usain Bolt. It just means that people think that he's not tripping over the carpet, and they were happy about that. So um, the reality is the next provincial election is two years away. Um, uh, COVID will either have been mitigated by vaccine or by other measures then, or it will have gotten uh, worse, which means uh, it's it's still a bad thing for, for the government. So um, if things turn normal, uh, Ford government's going to Ford government, and they're going to uh, they're going to piss off people again. Uh, sorry for the language. Um, and if if COVID still sticks around in two years, then we got a lot of problems. And uh, I think Ford uh, uh, is going to take some heat for that. So that's my take on that. It's amazing how his demeanor has has shifted a little bit, and uh, uh, during the COVID crisis, and I I suspect this is some strategic um, shift in the whoever's advising him in his office. I don't know, do you have any insight into that? Because there's clearly a shift from the early days when his, you know, his, his numbers were in the tank and he was just opening his mouth to change feet. Now, you know, at least he's he's coming across as kind of your likable, if not bright, too bright uncle, you know. Yeah, I mean, there certainly was some staff changes in the leader's office. And I, and I know from friends that still work uh, in the civil service that they're extremely nervous about doing anything that might be perceived as being bad. But listen, at, at the in the next budget, the reality is the Ontario government's probably going to be looking at a 20 to 30, maybe $40 billion deficit. And that's always going to be a very scary thing for conservatives. And um, I can't imagine that they're going to want to... Uh, stay the course of that and they're going to take some pretty draconian uh, message or uh, methods to reduce that so um conservatives will, will always go back to to be uh, especially those who uh, follow the mike harris um vein of conservatism they'll they'll always go back to their true colors
yeah, it's uh, it's costly when you give away a lot of money to your friends and government. And we're seeing that. Let's go south of the border now for our minutes remaining. Um, we're seeing that, of course, with Trump spending a lot of money on tax breaks to his friends and into his own pocket. Um, but his numbers are going down, Alex, uh, it, during COVID. Uh, it looks like Biden is, you know, his numbers are up. Uh, despite him being kind of charisma challenged, let's put it that way, uh, at, at the very least. But what do you what do you think? I mean, uh, is is Trump going to is Trump going to lose? And what's that going to look like? Well, apart from his immediate family, I don't think anyone's going to vote for Biden. I think everybody's going to be voting for or against Donald Trump. And uh, and in terms of both Black Lives Matter and in terms of COVID, more and more people are really, really starting to hate Trump. And, and so if I was a betting man, uh, which I'm not, uh, today I would bet on Biden uh, because the, the hatred of uh, Trump is probably going to outweigh the ambivalence to Biden. And, 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 but that's not guaranteed. We're still several months out. And, uh, you know, what did Biden say? You know, shoot him in the leg instead of shoot him in, in the heart. Uh, you know, that, that's democratic politics right there. Uh, so th- there's no enthusiasm there. But uh, Trump definitely deserves uh, to be kicked out. And, there's, and the interesting thing is there's actually splits in the states that the Pentagon and Trump's uh, defense minister ended up uh, actually coming out against Trump in terms of uh, his threats to use the police against the mass movement. Uh, precisely because oppression wasn't working, they, they had to uh, use uh, more, more honey to get people off the streets rather than the the, the the threats of oppression were actually making the movement bigger and bigger. So in, in terms of, uh, I think the most likely result is today is probably a Trump defeat. I won't call it a Biden victory, uh, but there's a lot of time between now and then. Now I had um, on my, I have a panel once a month called Law and Disorder with lawyers. And the, the first panel was last month with two um, black advocate activist lawyers. Um, one who said, yeah, you know, speaking from Columbia University said, yes, for sure, you have to vote for Biden. And the other said, no way. The activists I know aren't voting for him. They're not going to back up. Uh, They they were, you know, Bernie or nothing kind of people. So Alex, I just want to hear you you first on this. So so the Bernie or nothing people, are they going to stay home? Um, Is that, I, I mean, is there enough of a dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party, especially um, among the activist left element to um, to just stay home and say, mm, not not excited enough about Biden, I'm not going to get up in the morning to go vote. Well, well, uh, genuine socialists should not support Biden. Uh, but uh, yeah, in my previous comments, I was uh, being an analyst rather than an advocate. And I'd say no, social, socialists should not vote for Biden. Uh, but I think people will to get rid of Trump. Again, looking historically at, at Germany, where Marx thought something might happen or, uh, in terms of revolutionary fervor, um, where the German Socialist Party, um, you know, kind of made the same call and Hitler got in and they said, well, at least Hitler is insane. He's like, a, you know, he was the Trump of that, that era at that point. You know, Hitler, Hitler's insane. We can deal with the sanity. People will see the dramatic con- contrast. I mean, I think uh, 
was it Zizek, you know, supported Trump in the last, I mean, there's that kind of thinking going on on the left. I mean, isn't that kind of nuts? Well, the reality is, is you're going to have to fight either of them. You're going to have to, the, the day after the election, you're going to have to fight either of them. So don't take yourself by having supported either of them. And, 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 and that's not really, that's not what happened in Germany, actually. Uh, that, uh, but uh, I don't know if we've got enough time to go into the, the German revolution and the rise of Hitler. Well, we could, uh, we could talk, uh, talk about it later. But, yes. but I mean, certainly, <laughs> certainly the socialists that I've talked to have said that was a mistake. That was a strategic mistake. Emma, what's going to happen in the U.S.? And, um, and what should happen in the U.S.? Well, I think one point we can talk about um, is uh, if you look at Georgia uh, in in 2016, the primaries, the Democratic primaries, there was about 390,000 voters. In 2018, that exploded to 600,000. And last month in their primary in Georgia, despite it being in the middle of COVID and unprecedented uh, voter um, uh, suppression, it was just uh, around a million voters uh, in the Democratic uh, primary. So um, the 2018 showed us, uh, and by the way, that was predominantly uh, by uh, black voters, particularly black women who voted uh, almost a 90% voter turnout. Uh, there's, um, I, th I think the voter turnout for Democrats will be considerably higher than it was uh, in 2016. Um, the polls in the, the six battleground states that I keep going back to, uh, Michigan alone, where uh, Trump uh, beat Hillary by less than 1%. And she only ever had a 5% um, uh, lead in that. Uh, Biden's about 11 to 12%. So I, I, my gut says, um, unless something catastrophic happens, um, where Trump is able to come across as a true leader, uh, I, I think he's, uh, he's going to lose pretty badly. But what about the, the Bernie factor? What about all those people who really had their hopes on a Bernie, um, if not Bernie himself, and uh, who support the squad, for example, who think Ocasio-Cortez is, is the answer and uh, the rest of, of those that were kind of really voted in on a, a socialist, certainly a left wing for the United States platform. Um, do you think Biden will, uh, do you think the Democratic Party is going to give them any weight in terms of decisions in a Democratic government? I don't think that Bernie voters themselves give them any, uh, or supporters give themselves any weight. Uh, Bernie lost by 3 million votes against Hillary, and he, he was looking at similar numbers against um, uh, Biden. Uh, the fact is, Bi Bernie doesn't have the support um, uh, in, at the voters' box that he does have on social media, uh, and, and when we look at 2018 with the Democratic pickups in the South, uh, the, all the pickups were from moderate members. Uh, the three, the squad, all picked up wins in primaries or against um, uh, retiring Democrats. So uh, the reality is, right, the vote, the Democrat, or the average voter in the United States is still moderate, and um, that's what Biden needs to win. Uh, Alex, you were shaking your head there. Yeah, well, I don't think the average voter in the United States is a moderate, moderate. I think I've never seen a more divided, polarized society in my entire life. And the reality is, whether Biden or Trump wins the presidency, you're going to have to be fighting them the very next day. And that's why you ha they need a socialist Labour Party. The unions have got to break with the Democrats. They've got to start organizing a socialist party that can compete 
with both of them. Actually, one of the reasons I, I, Bernie in 2020 is not the same as Bernie in 2016, because he was tied to the democratic establishment, that, that a whole bunch, a whole layer of societies moved way to the left of Bernie and don't want anything to do with the Democrats. And, and you've seen that with the Black Lives Matter movement, that the fact that thousands and thousands and thousands of people can be mobilized over what are essentially revolutionary demands. Why is that not translating to the voter box? Because you need a party to vote for. You need a you need you need a structure. You need someone. You need a structure actually advocating that, and that is not present. Uh, but if it was built, pe- people would come, build it, and they will come. Well, I, clearly the squad has shown that it can happen. Can uh, is that not the beginning of what exactly you're speaking about? A, a rebirth within the Democratic Party? Yeah, it's symptomatic that people will support uh, socialist uh, politicians, but they have to break with the Democrats. There is no reforming this party. Absolutely. I mean, it seems to me uh, that the financing laws and the Electoral College are huge impediments um, to making change down there. I mean, it's it's kind of barely a democracy. Uh, but I have to I have to give it to you, Emma. You were right. Biden won. And you you predicted that early on. Um, so there you go. <laughs> um, I, I personally think, um, yeah, I, I, Trump got it. Trump is dangerous, but you're right. Uh, I would say um, ain't nobody safe going to win that election down there. And and to be honest, as a, somebody who lives uh, and lives in a marginalized community, I, I would say that uh, I'm sick of John Roberts being the, the wild card. Uh, the fact is uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg is in her 90s and has had several cancer scares in the last couple of years. Uh, Souter is it Souter or um, now I'm blanking? But the the the, uh, the second um, uh, so-called liberal um, Supreme Court justice is in his 80s, uh, and not, they both will be replaced by the next president. Um, so, uh, as somebody who who has friends down there who whose lives depend on the decision of the Supreme Court, and this is why. Um, uh, an overwhelming majority of uh, black voters supported Biden is because they're pragmatic and they know that uh, in the next four years, they cannot afford to have uh, two more Kavanaugh's being put on the, on the bench. Well, I'll say amen to that. Um, And it's a wrap. Um, Thank you, political panelists. We've been talking to Alex Grant, Fight Back, um, editor and Marxist, and Eva Wakelin, who is a liberal strategist. I am the Radical Reverend Sherry DeNovo. Uh, Lovely to have you listening with us out there. Send me your comments. Till the next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Mm -hmm.